Uh, well, I hope I don't scare anybody uh, today, but there is a, uh, there's a hidden danger in your house, my house. Regardless of the size, whether you live in a large 4,000, 5,000 square foot home or you have a small apartment, there's a hidden danger that every year destroys tens of thousands of homes. On top of that, it leads to multiple deaths every year and injures hundreds of others. And it's in your house and my house, whether you live in a very wealthy community or live in a marginalized community, whether you live in the urban environment or suburban environment, something that's in your house and my house that has the potential to destroy your house. And at this point, you're probably wondering, what is this thing that's in all of our houses, regardless of our wealth or income, regardless of our neighborhood, that has this potential? Dryer lint. If we don't deal with dryer lint, it has the potential to destroy your home. Every year, there are between 10 to 20,000 home fires that start because the dryer lint accumulates in your dryer or in the dryer vent, gets hot enough or catches a spark and sets the whole house on fire. Lives are lost every year because of these fires, <clears throat> and then hundreds of people are actually injured because of these house fires caused by this very simple thing that you have in your house and I have in my house known as dryer lint. Did y'all know that? Anybody know that fact about dryer lint? So uh, when you do your wash and do the uh, dryer clothes, make sure to clean out that dryer vent. And on a regular basis, clean out your dryer vents as well because this accumulated, very dry material is very flammable. And again, tens of thousands of homes every year are destroyed by fires caused by dryer lint. But what I want to talk about today is not dryer lint, but something that is destructive that's also in all of our lives. Something that uh, will ruin people's lives, ruin relationships and friendships, will totally destroy marriages, will ruin relationships and friendships of people in churches, it will destroy churches, it will also hinder and block our relationship with God. And it's something that all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have in our lives, something that we must also deal with before it gets to the point of destroying both ourselves, our loved ones, and ultimately our relationship with God. And that is pride. Pride. And today we're going to look at from 2 Kings 20, how to deal with pride. How to deal with pride in our lives. 2 Kings chapter 20, the king that we're looking at today is Hezekiah. And the uh, prophet is the well-known prophet Isaiah. How do we deal with the pride in our lives, this elevated view of ourselves and often that we forget about God and leave God out. How do we deal with pride in our lives before it becomes destructive? James 4, 6 says it this way, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? Uh, to use football terms, and this is written to believers. James is written to believers, to Christians, that you and I, when we have an elevated view of ourselves, we take credit for something God has done in our lives. When we have an elevated view of ourselves, God now lines up on the opposite side of the line of scrimmage. He's now opposing us. So pride will hinder your relationship with God, and pride will hinder God's work in your life. If you look at Isaiah 14 in your own time, you see the five I will statements, and this is the fall of Satan. So many believe that the original sin is Pride itself, where Satan tried to elevate himself above God, forgetting the fact that God created him and God blessed him. 
A parallel passage is found in Ezekiel 28, the same thing about the fall of Satan, because it says there was pride in his heart. So how do we deal with this thing called pride that invades all of our lives? And the message is titled today, Pride Turns Bad News into Good News. This is how insidious pride is. Pride can turn something bad into something we selfishly think is good. Look at uh, 2 Kings 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Set your house in order, for you are going, uh, going to die and not live. So Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. And many scholars believe that Isaiah, I mean Hezekiah, this passage here, uh, 2 Kings 20, should actually be like around chapter 18, because it occurs somewhere between 17 and 18. And this is repeated three times in the Bible. If you think uh, elementary school, when your teacher said repetition is there to signify that something's important, 2 Kings 20, the parallel passes Isaiah 38 and Isaiah 39. And Isaiah 38 and 39, it says the exact same thing that we're going to look at today. In 2 Chronicles 32, we see a summary of what's going on here today as well. So three times in the Old Testament, what we're looking at today warns us about the dangers of pride. So here, Hezekiah faces terminal illness. We don't know what that terminal illness is, but many believe it's some kind of skin tumor or boil because later on he applies a paste made from figs onto his skin. And so Hezekiah the king faces an Assyrian army in chapter 18 and 19 that's going to overthrow and attack him. What does he do? He prays to God. He says, God, would you deliver us? And God delivers them. Then he gets his news in chapter 20. And some believe it actually happened before. But somewhere in the mix, he also gets the news that you have a terminal illness. What does he do? He says this. Uh, he, he prays in verses 2, 3, and on. And in chapter uh, 20, verse 6, look at verse 6, 2 Kings 20, verse 6. And I will add 15 years to your life, and I will save you in this city from the hand of king, the king of Assyria. And I'll protect this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So what does uh, Hezekiah do? He falls to the knees humbly, like many of us probably would when we're facing an oncoming army, when we're facing terminal illness. He falls to his knees in humility and dependence and says, God, I'm crying out to you. And he cries out based on God's word. He says that you would have someone on the throne of David forever, and I don't have a son. And if I'm going to die without a son, then this thing is not going to continue. And that's why in verse 6, he says, I'm doing it. God says, I'll heal you, give you 15 more years for David's sake, because I promised someone to be on the throne. And during that 15 years, he has a son. Um, look at verse 8 here. Now, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will perform the word that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? So Hezekiah said, it is easy for the shadow to decline or go back 10 steps. No, but have the shadow turn back, uh, backward 10 steps. I'm sorry, go forward. Then Isaiah the prophet called out to the Lord. And he brought the shadow on the stairway back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the stair of Ahaz. So it's a sundial. It's a system by which they would measure time. And so Hezekiah says to Isaiah, he says, hey, how do I know God is going to heal me? Give me like some kind of verification. And he says, look at that sundial that you have to measure what time of day it is. Do you want God to make the sun go forward, the clock to go forward or backwards? And of course, Hezekiah's like, backwards. Like it's already going forwards, right? Make it go backwards. And that's what happens. The sundial goes backwards 10 degrees. 
Now, this is like a side note, footnote, whatever. So that, the question is, how did that happen? Did the, the earth stand still? Did the sun move? What happened? I believe this. This is just a footnote. It's not for a hill to die on. If you remember all the times in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God appeared, the glory of God appeared. And I believe the Shekinah glory outshone the sun and moved. And that's why the, the uh, dial went back 10 steps. So it was a supernatural thing. So here's the thing. This is my point. So, so that's the side. Imagine you're facing the greatest enemy or challenge of your life, like the Assyrians. Imagine you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And imagine you've prayed saying, God, I want to experience the supernatural. I want to see you move. And God answers the prayer of all three of those things. How would you feel if you had the greatest challenge or enemy of your life and God delivers you? And then you have a terminal illness. All the doctors say, hey, you only have days to live and God gives you 15 more years, enough to have a son. On top of that, you experience a supernatural. You see your watch go backwards 10 minutes. And now some of y'all are perpetually late. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Like to have 10 minutes back, right? Right? You just show, hey, I'm on time today, right? I'm kidding. That would be a miracle. If you experienced that, what would your posture be? You humbly bow and say, God, deliver us from the Assyrians. You humbly bow and say, God, would you heal me? God, I want to see you move. And you see, literally, God move. What would your posture be? Parallel passage, 2 Chronicles 32, 31. You can write that in your notes. 2 Chronicles 32, 31. It says that when God did all those things, 2 Chronicles 32, 31, God then took a step back. He left Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. After he delivered him from the Assyrians, healed him of this terminal illness, he saw the watch go back 10 minutes or 10 steps. God took a step back and said, now let's see what's in your heart. After I did all these things. He tells on himself in verse 12, 2 Kings 20, 12. At that time, Barodach Baladan, a son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah because he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the balsam oil, the scented oil, and the house of his armor, and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say, and from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country from Babylon. Verse 15, Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen everything that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. God took a step back to see what was in his heart. And what God found and what we read here is pride. We see pride. Hezekiah, delivered from the Assyrians, healed of a terminal illness, sees a supernatural work of God. These Babylonian envoys come and they're not as mighty as the Assyrians at the time. What does he do up? He shows off and he shows out out of pride. And that's why Isaiah says, what did you do? He said, I showed off all my treasure, all my wealth, all the armies, all the scented oils, everything in my house, I showed to him. So here's point number one. God's work in and through our lives can lead to pride if we aren't careful. In the 14th year of his reign, in about 701 BC, this is when all this happens. He's defeated the Assyrians. He's been healed of an illness. He's experienced a supernatural. 
God takes a step back and says, now what's in your heart? You're about to lose your job or you're looking for a job. You have an illness or a family member with an illness. You're praying about something supernatural happening. God does it in your life. God takes a step back. What shows up in your life? What shows up and reveal from your heart? And we see again that God is now minimized. And Hezekiah says, look at me. Look at how amazing I am. Look at all I've done. Look at my wealth. Look at my treasures. Look at my kingdom. Look at me. Forgetting it was God who gave him all those things. Forgetting it was God who delivered him from the Syrians. Forgetting it was God who healed them. God who allowed him to experience the supernatural. He went from a humble, please heal me. A humble, please deliver me. To now look at me. Uh, I went for a bike ride on Friday to Terry Hershey Park. And I was riding in one direction, about 15 miles an hour. And in the opposite direction, there was a, a father riding in the opposite direction, going about the same pace. But he had something unusual on his bike. He had a co-pilot bike trailer, if you've ever seen one of these. So he's riding on his bike, helmet and all the gear. He's riding, he's pedaling hard and working hard. Behind him is his daughter riding this co-pilot trailer. She's got a grin from ear to ear. She's smiling. She's got her helmet on. And I can almost imagine her saying, look at me. Look at how fast I'm going. Look at how free I am. Look at all I'm doing. Look at how fast I'm going. But I looked down at her feet. She wasn't pedaling <laughs> at all. And it dawned on me. God spoke to me in that moment saying, Icky, that's you. You get to enjoy all these good things I've blessed you with. I've done all the work. You simply get to enjoy it because you're connected to me through Jesus Christ. Boy, you ain't even peddling. <laughs> and you take credit for what I've done. And before y'all laugh, we all do the same thing. God gave you that job. God gave you those kids. God gave you all those blessings in that house. God gave you health and strength. God gave you discipline. And you're like, wee, look at me. And God says, you're only enjoying that because you're connected to me. And when we do that, y'all, that's pride. An elevated view of ourselves, taking credit for something God has done or is doing in our lives. And if we're not careful, like Hezekiah, God's work in and through our lives, we begin to take credit for. Several years ago, uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss, women's Bible teacher, came up with this list of the 41 evidences of pride, the 41 ways that we say, we look at me. They're very subtle because pride is very insidious. It's very subtle. It's a lot like this. I was sharing with our staff on Monday. Try to look at your nose. You can barely see like the tip of your nose, right? Pride is like your nose. It's really hard for you to see, but very easy for others to see. That's how pride is. We know very arrogant, proud people. Don't look around, y'all. I know you're looking around like, you know, yeah, you know, like the guy right here, right? No, don't do that. Very easy to see in others, but so hard to see in ourselves because pride blinds us from pride. So here's 41 evidences of pride. Do you look down on those who are less educated, less affluent, less refined, or less successful than yourself? Do you think yourself is more spiritual than your mate, others in your church? Do you have a judgmental spirit to those who don't make the same lifestyle choices you do? Dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards, etc. 
Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those thoughts to others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your mate, your pastor, other people in positions of leadership, teachers, youth pastors, etc.? So you'll ask the Spirit to just really work on your heart through this, to make your heart sensitive to this. Verse uh, number seven, do you give undue time, attention, and effort to your physical appearance, hair, makeup, clothing, weight, body shape, and avoiding appearance of aging? Are you proud of the schedule you keep, how disciplined you are, and how much you're able to accomplish? Are you driven to receive approval, praise, or acceptance from others? Are you argumentative? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a touchy, sensitive spirit, easily offended, get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of yourself than is really true? Would the people at church be shocked if they knew what you were like at home? Do you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong? You have a hard time confessing your sin to God or others, and not just in generalities, but specifics. You have a hard time sharing your real spiritual need, struggles with others. You have a hard time praying aloud with others. Are you excessively shy? You have a hard time reaching out and being friendly to people you don't know at church. Do you resent being asked or expected to serve your family, your parents, or others? Do you become defensive when you're criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Do you get irked or impatient with people who aren't? Do you tend to be controlling of your mate, your children, friends, those in your workplace? Do you frequently interrupt people when they are speaking? Does your husband feel intimidated by your spirituality? Does your husband feel like he can never measure up to your expectations of what it means to be a good husband, spiritual leader, etc.? Actually, let's, let's flip that on this next one. Does your wife feel intimidated by your spirituality? Does your wife feel like she can never measure up to your expectations of what it means to be a good wife or a spiritual leader, etc.? You often complain about the weather, your health, your circumstances, your job, or your church. Do you talk about yourself too much? Are you more concerned about your problems, needs, burdens, than about others' concerns? Do you worry about what others think of you? Too concerned about your reputation or your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for little things to God and to others? Do you neglect prayer intake of the word? Do you get hurt if your accomplishments or acts of service are not recognized or rewarded? You get hurt if your feelings or opinions are not considered when your mate or your boss is making a decision or if you're not informed when a change or decision is made. Do you react to rules? Do you have a hard time being told what to do? Are you self-conscious because of your lack of education or natural beauty or of your socioeconomic status? Do you avoid participating in certain events for fear of being embarrassed or looking foolish? Do you avoid being around certain people because you feel inferior compared to them and don't feel you measure up? Are you uncomfortable inviting people to your home because you don't think it's nice enough or you can't afford to do lavish entertaining? Is it hard for you to let others know when you need help, either practical or spiritual? When is the last time you said these words of family member, friend, or coworker? I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? If it's been more than a month, mark it down. Are you sitting here thinking how many of these, of these questions apply to someone you know? Feeling pretty good that none of these things really apply to you. So if we're honest with ourselves, all of us like dryer lint that accumulates in our dryers and our vents. All of us wrestle with and battle with pride if we're honest with ourselves. 
And this is what happens. Look at the outcome. Look at verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 17, behold, the days are coming when everything that is in your house and when your fathers are stored up to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons will come from you, whom you will father will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. The better translation there, officials, is eunuchs, some translations say. So at this point, because of the pride that's in Hezekiah's heart, the warning is Babylon is going to come and take everything. I don't know about you all, but that's bad news. Bad news for a king, bad news for a believer, male or female, that's bad news. If I showed up to your work tomorrow and I sat in your cubicle or your office and say, hey, the Lord has given me some revelation about your future. Because of the pride in your heart, this is what God has said. Everything you own, your house, your car, your motorcycle, your boat, your jewelry, your cologne, your shoes, your clothes, everything you own will be taken away and given to somebody else. Every last cent in your 401k, your IRA will be given to somebody else. For some of you, are like, material things, who cares? All right, take it. And then I say, and your children and their children and their children will become trafficked and human trafficking and sold to somebody else and serve somebody for the rest of their lives. Matter of fact, here it says there'll be officials. And the word there is eunuchs. The men, the males in your lineage. You know what a eunuch is? Snip, snip. They will experience that. They will not father children. They will not enjoy marital intimacy. So you may say, who cares about my house and my cars and my jewelry and all that stuff, material things. If the warning is, and even your family line will be affected. At that point, I'm hoping that you all like me to say, that's bad news. That's rough. To lose my house, to lose all these things, man, that's rough. My 401k cashed out and gone, that's rough. But man, my family. But look at the response, verse 19. This was this baffling. And this is the insidious side of pride. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. He said, good, y'all, good. For he thought, is it not good if there will be peace and security in my days? So here's point number two. Sadly, pride can selfishly turn bad news into good news. That's how destructive and insidious and, bad and terrible pride is. It can take bad news and make it twisted in a very sick way into good news. So if I came to your work tomorrow, all this stuff is going to be gone one day. You're going to lose it all. Kids are going to be gone. Grandkids, grandkids, males in the family, snip, snip. All this is going to be gone. And you say, well, when is that going to happen? And I say, well, after you die. Oh, great. Awesome. At least I'll get to have peace in my lifetime, security in my lifetime. And I'd offer you this, that pride is so deceptive. The peace that you enjoy in your lifetime is even a false peace. The peace that you enjoy in your marriage or family out of pride is even a false peace. So this is what pride does. Pride can selfishly turn bad news into good news. And if you can be honest with yourself and honest before the spirit, if we can all do that, you all know that we've done that. 
We know about at work when we hear about, hey, this person's about to get let go, terminated. Hey, this person has an illness and they're about to quit. You're like, ooh, maybe their clients will be my clients now. Maybe I get to get their position. They're the executive vice president. Maybe I'll get the promotion and I'll get the office and the check. That man or woman who's executive vice president, that salesperson, you're thinking about getting their clients and customers, even though they've been diagnosed with terminal illness, even though they're about to get terminated, they've got a wife and kids are about to go to college, and that's all you can think about? You? Well, let's be honest. We do that, don't we? I see like one or two heads nodding. Thank you for the bravery and honesty of those one or two people. My good friend, Steve Besner, pastor of Houston's Northwest Church, he said this week on Tuesday, I think, he's got COVID. He's got a heart condition, so it's really hard for him. So I've been praying for him and asked you to join me in prayer for Steve Besner. But it would be a sickening thing when he revealed to his staff, hey, guys, I'm going to miss this Sunday. I've got COVID. I need to be quarantined. Would you pray for me? I'm in recovery and all that. And some of his associate pastors are like, ooh, finally, I get to preach. Finally, I get to get up there and wow people. I get to be the man, right? But that's how insidious pride is. We take somebody's bad news and we flip it and twist it and manipulate it and pervert it into good news selfishly. That's what pride does. That's what happens here. He's not thinking about his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. He's not thinking about Israel's future. He's not thinking about the covenant promises of God. He's only thinking about himself. Pride blinds us to the needs, feelings, and sufferings of others, whether in the past, present, or future. That's what pride does. Pride blinds us not only to pride, but it blinds us to the needs, feelings, and sufferings of others, both in the past, present, or past, present, and future. That's what it does. That's why a very humble person, a very proud person, can see the same news program can see what's going on in Afghanistan, can see what's going on in Haiti, can see the gun violence going in some of our communities here in greater Houston, and not care that the violence happened in my neighborhood in Katy. Nope, I'm good, then I'm straight. Is anybody fleeing from the Taliban in my neighborhood? Nope, I'm good, then I'm straight. Are believers in Afghanistan trying to gather right now, trying to worship under the threat of even death? Yeah, maybe they are, but who cares? I'm here. Listening to some not-so-good preaching, but I'm here. Who cares? It makes us blind and in, uh, lacking compassion to the sufferings of others. It blinds us to that, to the feelings of others, the feelings of your spouse, the feelings of your coworkers. Blinds us to that, the needs of others, the suffering of others, both in the past, present, and even future. As long as right now, I'm okay, my world's okay, my family's okay, my job is okay. Who cares about anybody else? That's what pride does. When I ran track in college, I ran for Brooks Johnson, who is uh, very well known in the track world. He's coaching Olympian every year since 1968. He's been the head coach of the U.S. Olympic team several times, the track team. And he had this lecture he would give every year for the first month of track practice. Because many of the athletes that came to run track at Cal Poly, they were the best athlete in high school, best athlete in the city, best athlete in their junior high or in their track team or club team, whatever, they're the best. And so they were taught falsely that the world revolves around you. It's all about you. You're the man. You're the woman. 
It's all about you. You got the scholarship. You're amazing. You're the state finalist. You're amazing. So he said, I spend the first month of practice giving this lesson. And it's an astronomy lesson. The world does not revolve around you. The world does not revolve around you. And that's true for every single one of us in this room this morning. The world does not revolve around you. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what consumers and marketing say. That's all about you and your needs and you. The world does not revolve around you. The world revolves around Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It does not revolve around you. And that's what pride does. Pride makes us think the world revolves around me and my needs and my wants. So here's the antidote for pride. It's not false humility. It's not humility like be humble. Antidote for pride is a radical focus on Jesus, a lifestyle of worship and gratitude. That's what it is. It's not like, okay, okay, I'll be humble. So tomorrow when I get the promotion or get recognized for something, oh, no, 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 no. It's not that. If God's given you the gift of singing, if God's given you the gift of leadership and people at work say, man, you're a great leader. You've, you've been, you're an awesome leader. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't say that. Say, yeah, praise God. God's the one that gave me that gift. God's the one that gave me the ability. You point it back to God. It's a radical focus on Jesus and pointing people to Jesus Christ. Let me give you three responses. Three responses. A radical focus on Jesus enables us to see ourselves rightly. First John tells us to walk in the light. That's what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. That's why I think Isaiah understood this. Isaiah, Isaiah 6, he is in the presence of God, the glory of God. He's able to see himself rightly. That's why he says, depart from me. He wants to depart. He's like a, an unclean man. When we're in the presence of Jesus, when we're focused on him, we see ourselves rightly, correctly. We recognize all that he's blessed us with. We recognize all that he's gifted us with. Question for you all in the room who are Christians, who put your faith in Jesus. How many of y'all saved yourself? Like you saved yourself. You were like good enough, amazing enough, righteous enough. You saved yourself. God had to save you because you were so righteous. None of us did, right? God saved us. God did it. God did it. He sent his son. He loved us. He chose you. He did it. Let me ask this. How many on here chose to be born in Houston, Texas, rather than in Kabul, Afghanistan, or in Port-au-Prince, Haiti? How many all chose to be born here in Houston? Anybody choose where you were born? Anybody in here? Anybody in here choose who your parents going to be? Anyone in here choose the gifts and the talents you would have? Anybody here choose that? Anybody? Anybody choose your ethnic, ethnic background or the city you'd be born in or the country? Anybody choose any of that? So you didn't choose any of those things, whether spiritual or physical. And, but when we have a focus on Jesus, we see those things rightly. We recognize God had me born here. God had me born this way. God gave me this. God gave me these spiritual gifts when I was born again. God is the one who saved me. And what does it do? It should give you a heart of gratitude and humility. Second is this. We can't have a radical focus on Jesus and ourselves. We can't have a radical focus on Jesus and ourselves. Impossible. What's true physically is also true spiritually. You cannot be full of yourself and full of Jesus. You can't be full of yourself and full of the Holy Spirit. Impossible. Just like the same thing cannot occupy the same space. And you cannot focus radically on Jesus and also radically focus on yourself. And when I say yourself, I don't mean, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Like, you have to focus on yourself, obviously. But when it's 
comes with being the center of the universe. Who does your life revolve around, you or Jesus Christ? You cannot focus on two things. For those of you in here who are getting ready for the fall coming up and you're excited for hunting season to start, I challenge you to do this. I challenge you with your rifle and your scope, try to focus on two different deer or two different bucks at the same time. Can't do it. You can only focus on one buck at one time. And if there's one over here, you can't focus on two at the same time. What's true physically, visually, is also true spiritually. You can't focus on Jesus, have a focus on him, walk with him, spend time in his word, pray, be filled with him, and experience his presence during the workday and say, this is Jesus, he's the focus of my life. And at the same time saying, it's all about me. Can't do it. Lastly is this, a radical focus on Jesus leads to giving and serving generously. A radical focus on Jesus leads to giving and serving generously. Why do I say that? Because you recognize everything that I've been blessed with, all my talents, all my resources, everything I have is from God. Even those you say, well, I'm really disciplined. I'm a real hard worker. Where do you think and who do you think gave you that ability? Who do you think gave you that ability to be disciplined? Who gave you that hard work and that work ethic? God did. And so because that you recognize everything I have, I'm a manager. God's given it to me, entrusted it to me. And now I can give it generously and freely. I can use my talents and abilities now to serve others. Put this in parentheses, especially those in the next generation. So radical folks on Jesus leads to giving and serving generously, especially those in the next generation. Because here, Hezekiah only cared about himself and his generation. Had no cares about his kids, his grandkids, and even beyond. But the person who has a radical focus, a Christian who has a radical focus on Jesus, will serve others and give generously to others, especially to those in the next generation. They care about the future. They care about not just Bayou City Fellowship today, but even 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, let me give you some exciting news, y'all. This, this sermon is one of those sermons that, you know, messages that like, it feels like there's been grease in the chairs because everyone starts squirming. This is one of those squirm sermons. I was talking to Megan, kids pastor, and she said, hey, we need 120 volunteers if we're going to have a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. kids program. 120, minimum. Last Sunday, we had 44 people in our kids basics program, kids basics class. The most we've ever had in the last two years. 44 of you all came to that class to learn how to volunteer and serve in kids ministry. Megan said this to me. We need 120 minimum in order to have a 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. The total after those 44 people, an additional, I think, 30-odd some odd people, we now have on paper 140 volunteers. <laughs> but here's the thing. God is faithful. God is faithful. Amen? But people are flaky. <laughs> so this is what I'm praying for, y'all. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for 200 volunteers. I'm praying for 200 volunteers. So 120 is the bare minimum we need. We have 140 right now, but I'm praying for 200 kids volunteers. People who say, hey, I recognize in light of Jesus, everything I have comes from him. Every gift I have, the time, my energy is from him. And if there's a way that I can serve in the kids, I want to serve in the kids. I'm praying for 200 volunteers in the kids' ministry. And if you look around the room, you'll see some people with a green, bicycle kids' shirts. These are people who are already serving kids' ministry right now. 
So if you would like to sign up, we've got some more Kids Basics classes coming up here in the fall. So please sign up. I'm praying for 200 volunteers in our kids ministry. Other one is this. Uh, someone asked me this week. Uh, so one of our partner ministries is Houston Welcomes Refugees. Where's, uh, there, there, Mike and Michelle right there. Uh, they're one of our partner ministries, and some people have asked, hey, what can we do about Afghanistan, what's going on there? Well, we've got refugees from Afghanistan coming to Houston. And so if you would like to help, if you say, God has been so good to me, God has been so good to me, I want to now be good and generous to somebody else, you can go to Houston Welcomes Refugees website, and they have a myriad of ways that you can serve and give. They're looking for people as these refugees come, have apartments, they need beds and furniture and food and things like that. And you say, hey, God has been so good to me. I want to now be good to somebody else. You can do that as well. So Radical Folks on Jesus leads to giving and serving generously, especially to the next generation. So again, pride, this is what pride does. Pride selfishly turns bad news, horrible news, selfishly into good news. But humility can do the opposite. This is what I want to do to close. I'm just going to read the Bible. And I ask that you would close your eyes and ask the Spirit of God, the living God, to work in your hearts. And I'm reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, we bow before you now humbly as your children that you've adopted we didn't adopt ourselves. You graciously and lovingly adopted us. And God, we've seen today how pride can selfishly turn bad news into good news. But Philippians 2 shows us that humility can unselfishly turn bad news into good news. The bad news that we are separated from a holy and perfect God because of our sin, because of our unrighteousness. But because of Jesus Christ and his humility, his obedience to the point of death on a cross, the bad news of separation from you, of condemnation, is now good news of the gospel. That if we simply place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, we can be forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and enjoy what's been promised to us, eternal life a relationship with you both now and forever and ever. So God, I pray if there's anyone here today who's under the sound of my voice has yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ alone and they are experiencing the bad news 
But today they place their faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And God, for us today, I pray, not for false humility, God, for genuine humility that comes out of a radical focus on Jesus, a walk with Jesus, being aware of him in our daily lives, spending time in his word, that your word would be a mirror to show us us, that your spirit would reveal ourselves to us as well. And God, where there is pride, God, that you would root it out, that we recognize that being born, being born again, having gifts, having talents, the blessings that we enjoy, our families, our kids, our jobs, our health, all come from you. They're all sourced in you. They come from your gracious and good hand. And God, would that lead to a heart and a posture of humility? That God, like Hezekiah, if you were to take a step back from us, if you were to leave us to see what's in our hearts, God, our hearts would be full of humility, worship, and gratitude because we're focused on Jesus. We ask this all in his name. And all God's people said,